Let us now open God's Word and read there a number of passages. First, let us read from Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, going on to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. We consider there how God created the world. Now he placed man in the Garden of Eden to care for it, tend it. After reading from Genesis, we'll turn to Isaiah 65, the verses 17 to 25. And finally, from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Beloved, hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the ground or on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel, which is the one that goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, 
from the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Thus far, reading from Genesis. Let us turn then to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah 65. We'll read beginning at verse 17. The word of the Lord once again. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. The child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not eat and another eat. Or plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Finally, from Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as man-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. You masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Thus far, our readings from God's word. We turn now to also read together from the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 42 is our confessional reading for this afternoon's sermon. Lord's Day 42, we confess the following to be a faithful summary of God's word. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, counterfeit merchandising or deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. 
In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may. Deal with him as I would like others to deal with me and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. So, beloved, we confess. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, back in the medieval ages in Europe, before the time of the the Protestant Reformation, there was a sharp division in society. On the one hand, you had the clergy, and on the other, the laity. Those who were members of the clergy, such as the bishops and the priests, as well as those who were part of the holy orders, think of monks or or nuns, they were thought to pursue a more God-pleasing life because of the thought that they were doing the Lord's work. And the laity, or basically everyone else in society, was also thought to be capable of of pleasing God with their good works. But, you know, their everyday jobs or tasks weren't seen as important to the Lord. Their work was seen as being kind of a second nature, or second tier. Much of that changed with the Protestant Reformation, at least among the Protestants. The Reformation, it it dignified even the most mundane of professions. The reformer, John Calvin, argued in his time that whether one was a, a cobbler or a cook, a mule driver or a magistrate, every legitimate human occupation possessed divine significance. Each could become an expression of praise and gratitude to God. See, what the reformers like Calvin discovered in in God's Word, or rediscovered in God's Word, is that God isn't just praised when we might sing to Him or pray to Him or, or listen to His Word in church. His work isn't simply carried out by by pastors or elders or deacons. God is also greatly praised and honored when we honestly and steadfastly carry out whatever occupations or tasks that we've been given. That means that whether we go about our days driving trucks, changing diapers, laying cable, teaching kids, preparing meals, or managing corporations. We can please our Father in heaven. We can glorify Him by simply carrying out the tasks before us in accordance with His law and to the best of our ability. God, we might say, is pleased by our everyday work and labor. Because he has created us to do such things. 
From the very beginning with Adam and Eve, he expected humanity to spend most of its time working to provide for their earthly needs. And so he expects us to also be diligent now in working to provide for ourselves and provide for those around us. That's something we're going to focus on in our sermon this afternoon. Beloved, I proclaim what God's Word tells us about following the Eighth Commandment, using the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide and, and this theme. God created us to work. We'll see first, in order to meet our needs, second, in order to glorify our Father, and third, in order to love our neighbors. You might ask, why are we focused on the topic of work when we're looking at the Eighth Commandment? And the reason for this is that in many ways we might say work is the opposite of theft. When God says, you shall not steal, he's telling us that we shouldn't acquire things by, by illegitimate means. We shouldn't acquire things we don't deserve to have. But by implication, we might also say he is telling us to acquire things by legitimate means. That is, by working so that we might produce or purchase or, or possess what we need. And we should acknowledge from the outset that it's not enough to say, work hard and you'll never be tempted to, to steal or, or find yourself stealing. And we need to recognize that when our hard work pays off, that is a great blessing from God. That in itself isn't a guarantee. Some people work hard every day and still don't make enough to, to cover all of their costs, so they're tempted to steal. Now, many seniors in Canada, for instance, have worked hard their entire lives, but, but now don't have the means to properly provide for themselves. They might find themselves shoplifting just to avoid going hungry. Some people make enough income to make their needs, but still can't resist the opportunity to get further ahead so that they could enjoy vehicles or homes or vacations or whatever have you that they couldn't otherwise afford. Some people have money in abundance, but just want to enjoy more variety and say their, their music or their, their movies, and so they might illegally download or, or stream such content. Some people have the money to pay for the things they steal, but they steal anyways because they find the theft exciting. The fact that you work hard doesn't mean you won't ever be tempted to break the eighth commandment. But we might say it is the, the primary God-given means by which we are to, to meet our needs and to, to meet the needs of others. A godly perspective on work goes a long way in ensuring that the eighth commandment is honored among us all. The Bible, it promotes working hard. And looking to God to reward that effort. The book of Proverbs reminds us that generally speaking, those who work hard will enjoy the fruit of their labor. Proverbs 10 verse 4 tells us, He who has a slack hand 
becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, verse 11 says, He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. Now, these aren't guarantees. Sometimes the diligent don't become rich. Sometimes someone works the land faithfully, but their crop still gets wiped out because of the weather. These Proverbs are wise principles to follow. They tell us about the normal order of things in God's created world. God, he created mankind to work and so provide for his earthly needs. Genesis 2 verse 15 tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now the Garden of Eden, it was filled with all kinds of of fruit-bearing plants. It would be a mistake to think that Adam was, was created to simply spend his days strolling around the garden, never really doing a thing, but just grabbing the occasional olive or fig or pomegranate and otherwise taking naps. And when God made man, he, he placed him in a location filled with resources that man might use, develop. We're told, for instance, that in the garden, there was a a single river from Eden split into four rivers, which ensured that the garden itself would be well watered. We're told the garden contained every plant that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The territory nearby contained numerous precious resources, gold, bdellium, which is either a transparent gum or a a kind of precious stone. It's not entirely clear. As well as onyx or red carnelian. Genesis 1 tells us that God gave mankind every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. The references to seeds would imply that that mankind would want to plant these seeds in order to to grow more plants or trees in the course of time. God, he he placed Adam and Eve in a place where they could flourish, where where civilization could develop. We might note that when our first parents fell into sin, the punishment wasn't that Adam would have to work for the first time but that his work would be more difficult. God told Adam, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. The point was that Adam would find it more difficult to acquire the food that his family would need to survive. But work itself wasn't part of the curse. Work was part of God's good creation. And it will be part of the new creation, which is to come. Isaiah describes the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 65, verse 21, saying, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Just because Jesus has gone ahead of us to, to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, 
doesn't mean that when we finally get to experience the the new heaven and the new earth for ourselves, there won't be anything for us to do. The new heaven and the new earth, we might expect, will be a a place of abundance, a, a place like the Garden of Eden in which prosperity and security are enjoyed without pain or, or suffering. We're certainly reminded of this when we read the, the well-known words of Isaiah 65, verse 25. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. The reference to dust being the serpent's food is meant to remind us of the initial curse following the the fall into sin when God told the serpent, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. You might say Isaiah, he mentions it here in connection with the new heaven and the new earth to to point us back to the Garden of Eden. To teach us that that God's plan is to, to restore to us an existence which the ground readily yields its bounty to us, in which our work is blessed, in which we enjoy his his good presence, first of all, but also a world in which we also enjoy the things that he has made. And we often read the words about the the lion, or sorry, the wolf and the lamb and the the lion eating straw. And we we simply take it as an image of of peace or a world without violence. That's certainly implied. But for Isaiah's original audience, these words also would have pointed towards prosperity. would have pointed towards a a world in which their efforts to to raise their flocks wouldn't be frustrated by the predation of, of wolves and lions. A world in which a shepherd wouldn't have to worry that he might step on a poisonous snake while leading his flocks through hills and valleys. A world in which labor was present but easy and blessed. On the present, we might rejoice that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has freed us from sin through his death on the cross. And we might look forward to that better existence ourselves. We, as God's children here and now, by faith alone, I look forward to that new heaven, that new earth. One in which there will be countless, infinite opportunities to work, to make, to explore, to enjoy God's goodness, his creativity, and his creation. And as children of God, we might be confident that God already works in our hearts at this time. That we might carry out our our present work and tasks, frustrated though they may be by the fall into sin, in a manner which still testifies to God's glory and grace. God, we may be sure, gives us what we need so that when we work, we might do it in according with his standards. In a way that demonstrates the the fruit of the Spirit, those godly characteristics which are meant to to assure us of our salvation, point us to Jesus Christ. At the start of the, the 20th century, a sociologist known as Max Weber, he coined the phrase the Protestant work ethic. 
sometimes also known as the Calvinist work ethic. Weber believed that Protestants, Calvinists in particular, were inclined to work hard because when they experienced success in their daily work, they saw it as a sign of God's favor and election. Now, he was a little off in his theology. As Protestants, as Calvinists, we may be inclined to, to work hard. Not because our success, mind you, though, points to God's election. Now, whether or not our business, say, fails or succeeds shouldn't be taken as an indicator that we are one of God's children. But in our work, we might get to, to see in ourselves something of God's favor toward us. Now, if we have a, a business and we run it honestly and fairly in service to God, we could be by that further assured of God's grace towards us. On the other hand, if we should look at our business dealings or our labor or what have you, we see that in them we perhaps don't take any concern for our employees or we take advantage of our customers through deceptive advertising or high-pressure sales tactics. If we find ourselves only caring about our bottom line and not the people who are impacted by what we do, well, then we might need to reevaluate and repent. Our work in that case must sh might show us how we have gone astray and of how our hearts yet need to turn to the Lord. In all of our work, there is opportunity to either please God or reject Him, to honor His holy name or insult it. And so let us prayerfully and mindfully strive to, to carry out whatever daily tasks are before us, whether they're things we're, we're paid for, things that we simply do for ourselves or those around us. Let us endeavor to do all these things in a way which truly pleases our God, which is truly in line with his expectations for his children. This brings us to our Second point. We can say that work is glorifying to God because it's ultimately done in imitation of God. Now the very first occurrence of the word for work, Hebrew comes in Genesis 2 verse 2 where we're told, on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Our creator, we might say, is someone who has himself worked and continues to work. Something to keep in mind if we reflect upon the fact that we were created in the image of God. If you think about it, Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, is basically just a recording of, of God doing a, a whole bunch of His work. Then He caps it off with the creation of man in, in His own image. You might say, what do we know about God at that point then in, in Genesis 1, coming to the, the end of that first chapter of the Bible? Well, we know that He is a God who works and creates 
and make things or makes things. And thus there is an implication that those who are made in his image, those who are made to be like him, can also be expected to be workers, makers. As God reflected every day upon the good things that he had done, so we also ought to take time to appreciate all that God allows us to do in our work. Whether we do that work in our homes or at the office or at a job site or anywhere else that he has placed us. As people made in the image of God, we aren't supposed to, to think of work as being this, this awful thing which, which needs to happen before we can actually enjoy the lives God has given us. We aren't supposed to see work as a curse or burden. It isn't supposed to be that thing that we put up with so that one day we might get to eventually go on a vacation or, or retire God wants us to seek to to enjoy what we do, to take pleasure in the things that we have been able to accomplish or achieve by his fatherly hand. The Lord, he indicates that this will also be the case for the future. Declares to the prophet Isaiah in 65 verse 22, My elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now the promise of eternity, we might say, that which is secured for us by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, it isn't the promise of an eternity free from work, but an eternity in which we have freedom to enjoy work. We'll no longer be slaves to labor in order to to survive, to be able to produce enough sustenance that we can live to another day. But this is a place where we will be able to work, we might say, for the sheer joy of it. A perfect world is not one in which we are doing nothing, but one in which we are joyfully doing all things to God's glory in the midst of God's glory. Now, some of us today might find that we have to perform jobs or carry out tasks that we don't particularly enjoy. But we should strive to do them well as a way of thanking our Father in heaven for all that he has done for us. We may be confident that a time will come when we shall be rewarded in abundance for whatever kinds of hardships we have had to endure for Christ's sake. Now if we have to labor under a a horrible, basically abusive boss, carrying out tedious tasks day after day, but, but we are doing it to provide for our loved ones, God knows it. If we have to labor long days and endure hardship to to provide for, for good things for our family, like Christian education, God sees it. We have to take on additional work so that we won't just be able to provide for ourselves and our families, but have something to to give to others. God sees that as well. Now, we might not always see the benefit of, of living this way in the present. But the day will certainly come when we see that our labor has never been in vain. 
but has always been done in the very presence of a God who recognizes it, remembers it, values it. This brings us to our third point. Our work isn't just about us and our relationship with God. We also need to see that it ought to to impact those around us. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, we read, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. I'm reminded we aren't just called to, to work for our own benefit. That by working hard, we can also gain money or other resources to, to help those in need. We're called to, to work in order to give to those who aren't able to work or aren't able to, to make enough through their work to, to support themselves. And we now acknowledge in the, the catechism that we are to, to work faithfully so that we may be able to, to give to those in need. This, in turn, helps to bring glory to God. Because when those who are in need receive support, they will be less inclined to steal. And so we help them to also keep God's commandments and to to honor His will for their lives. For this reason, we should be particularly eager to, to support the work of the deacons among the needy. Not only with money, but also with things like encouragement, in ways, ways you might say the, the generosity of the, the deaconry of a given church is usually a, a solid barometer for the attitude of the church as a whole. Now if the church body is full of people who, who gripe and complain about having to, to support others or about the way that others are supported, you can be sure that will impact the, the attitude and the conduct of the deacons. On the other hand, when a church is filled with generous individuals possessing a generous mindset, you can be sure that will also leave its mark upon the office bearers. Let's remember, beloved, that God loves a cheerful giver. But giving money to those in need isn't the only way to show love for a neighbor. We confess in the catechism that we must promote our neighbor's good wherever we can and may and deal with him as we would like others to deal with us. One of the ways we can do that is by promoting a, an environment in a society in which others are able to benefit from our labor and reap all the rewards of their own labor. That is an environment in a society in which we deal fairly with one another. We cheat others. If we steal from others, we are hurting their efforts to provide for themselves. We're forcing them to to work twice as hard to enjoy the same rewards. On Proverbs 18, verse 9, we're told, He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Now, just by putting less effort into our work, just by, by slacking off in the tasks that we are given, we can do just as much damage as a thief or a robber. 
We might tell ourselves, well, my actions don't really hurt anyone. I'm not stealing food from the mouths of starving children. We might consider that our actions can often have unintended consequences. Oh, let's say we figure out how to, to slack off on the jobs so that no one really notices that we aren't pulling our weight. But as a result, our company has to, to lay someone off to make up for the shortfall. The children of that former employee suddenly have to go to school hungry because their parents can't provide them enough food to meet their needs. It's worth remembering that when we fail to, to work hard, or when we cheat our employers, or when we cheat our employees, or when we steal from one another in any way, someone else is always going to be suffering down the line. We might tell ourselves that, well, this slacking off might only hurt the, the owner's paycheck. He has plenty of money anyways. But the company owner, we might say, is also your neighbor. Christ calls on you to love your neighbors, regardless of whether or not they are wealthy. We might not always see how our theft impacts others, or how it impacts our, our society as a whole. But it shouldn't take much mental effort to realize that when we steal from, from anyone... We're going to be bringing about a hardship and a suffering for other people whom God has called us to love. And so instead, we are to remember at all times what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are to be content with the blessings that he has chosen to pour out upon us, including the material blessings we enjoy. If he chooses to give others wealth and prosperity while we have to live in relative poverty, so be it. We don't have some kind of a natural right to, to even the economic scales by illegitimate means. We are to be content to do our work, do it well, and ask for God's blessing upon it. And then accept what he chooses to send us and provide for us. A living in this content, this humble way. We show our God, we show our Savior our gratitude for all that we has, he has done. We show our complete trust in his love toward us. Amen.